0: Saul, if you remember, had attacked a Philistine garrison deep inside Israel. And uh, as I said last week, as a result of that attack, he opened up a hornet's nest, and the hornets started flying everywhere. The Philistines came in a, in a mighty way, came back, and they were as the sand of their army became as the sand of the seashore, it says in chapter 13. A massive army came, and they surrounded Saul and his men. Saul had 3,000 men originally, and most of those defected, leaving only 600 men left. On top of all that, Saul had disobeyed the word of God spoken through Samuel. We saw this in chapter 13 last week. We can't go over that again. Just give me a quick review. He, he disobeyed matters, took matters into his own hands. Samuel said, wait for me to get to Gilgal. You wait there for seven days. I'm going to come and offer sacrifices. Saul didn't wait, took matters into his own hands. And as a result of this, Samuel pronounced judgment upon Saul. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. This is what Samuel said to Saul. You have acted, This is a key passage right here in the life of Saul. You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, he says. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, which because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul is judged. He's not going to have a dynasty. He's going to rule as king, yes, but he's not going to have a dynasty that's going to last. The Lord would look for a man after his own heart to do that, and that would be David. And this implies that Saul was not a man after God's own heart, as David would be. So Saul uh, has all these problems going on, and not only does he have an army that's going AWOL, he receives this disheartening news as well, your kingdom's under judgment now. And on top of that, there are only two people in Israel who have serious weapons. We talked about this last week. So they they were the ones that forged the weapons. And they didn't allow Israel to have weapons. And I don't know how all that happened, but... And so Israel's at a great disadvantage. They're surrounded by the enemy. They're sealed off. Forces from the northern tribes of Israel cannot come in to help them. They're in a real jam right here. They don't have the help of Samuel. Remember, he got mad and left after he judged Saul. They don't have the help of the prophet at all here. So they're in a real hopeless situation. That brings us into chapter... 14. In this chapter, we're going to see how Saul and his son Jonathan resp- respond to these circumstances that they're under. First of all, let's look at the faith of Jonathan. That's found in the first 23 verses that that were read by Justin. The faith of Jonathan. And I'll just read verse 1 and verse 6 here. It says, Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the Philistine's garrison that, we, that is on the other side, but he did not tell his father. Verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over into the garrison of these uncircumcised as the Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Now, there's many examples in the Bible of people that showed tremendous faith in God under difficult, if not impossible, circumstances. Hebrews 11 is a chapter that's filled with examples of people of faith, people like Abel, Enoch, Enoch. Moses, um, Abraham, and Sarah, and it goes on and on. Great people of faith that put their faith in God, and God worked and did something on their behalf. In the Gospels, we, we know of the, the woman who came to Jesus with an issue of blood, and she said, if only I may touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Remember that story? And Jesus said, daughter, your, your courage. Uh, take courage, your faith has made you well. And, and what about, we think of the Roman centurion also that came to Jesus. They didn't even come to Jesus. He sent friends to Jesus. And they said to him, uh, that Our master says, Remember, he had a sick slave and he wanted him healed. And, and they said, Our master says, Just say the word from where you're at, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And so there's all these displays of great faith in the Bible. It's, and, and, you know, these displays of faith aren't given to elevate the individual. to tell us how great Jonathan was or how great, uh, uh, you know, Abel was or one of those guys. It's to show that God is the one that's great. It's to glorify God. Uh, it's not faith in and of itself that's the issue. It's faith in God that is the issue. And, and so that's what we're looking at here. And we're not talking about human optimism either. We're talking about faith in God. There's a difference between the two. And so... In this chapter, Jonathan will place his life, he will place his faith solely in the hands of God as he goes forth to do something insane, really, against all odds, he's going to do something. He's going to try to go and and make something happen against all these Philistines that are surrounding him. There's only 600 guys in the Israeli army at this time, right? And Jonathan and his armor bearer decide to go, those two decide to go and do something to break this whole situation up. He's taking a great risk here. If he was on his own, his his death is certain. There's no doubt about it at all. But he's facing impossible odds, but his confidence is not in himself. It's not in his ability. It's in God. And so he goes forth with this confidence. Now, we're going to learn something here about the faith of Jonathan by way of contrast. Sometimes in 1 Samuel, we see a contrast presented or a comparison between two individuals placed side by side. Remember in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, we had the contrast given of of uh, Hannah's son, Samuel, and then the sons of Eli, the wicked sons of Eli. And then we saw the contrast between Eli and Samuel as well. And so now in this chapter, throughout this chapter, as a matter of fact, we have a contrast between the father, Saul, and his son, Jonathan. And let's look at this faith that's contrasted with Saul. He says in verse 1, Jonathan says, Come, let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison and go to the other side. Now, it takes some. Courage, like I said, tremendous courage, knowing the great presence of the, the massive Philistine army and and the, and the might and 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 that you only have 600 men on your side makes this the true act of faith. Now, some would say this is foolishness, right? I would have probably been one of them, What's well, ridiculous, what are you thinking of? But the alternative is to not do anything at all. Look, they're in a hole here, a real jam, and nobody's doing anything at all, and so Jonathan decides to act, and he does that. Sometimes a person needs to step out on faith. Sometimes that has to happen when, when, when the times demand it, when the, when, when the circumstances demand it, you step out on faith in order to move ahead. Yes, you have to count the cost. Yes, what you do must line up with the Scripture. Uh, don't be, make foolhardy decisions in, in that realm and along those lines. Yes, you have to have total dependence upon God. But sometimes a believer needs to step out on faith if there's something that God wants him to do. Now notice that Jonathan did not tell his father. In verse in verse one it says, could be that he didn't want to worry his father. It could be that his father would have forbidden him to have gone and do this thing. And what was Saul doing all this time? He's hanging out in the outskirts of Gibeah. It says in verse three. He's he's under the pomegranate tree. In verse three it says, or verse two rather. Um, He's under the pomegranate tree. Now, what's he doing there? Taking a, a break? Resting under the shade tree, or what? Well, it could be a reference to his leadership, because back in Judges 4, Deborah the judge was uh, judging under the palm tree of, what was it called? Palm tree of what? Deborah, right? Deborah was judging under the palm tree of Deborah. That's what it says in Judges chapter 4. That was a symbolic symbol of, uh, of her leadership. Maybe this is symbolic of his leadership, that he's under this tree. Maybe he's doing some kind of administrative something I don't know what he'd be doing they're surrounded by the enemy at this time whatever the reason was though Saul's doing nothing to alleviate this unbelievable situation they're in in Israel's history he's not trusting the Lord he's not seeking advice from God he's he's not seeking a solution his presence under this particular tree may symbolize his leadership but he's not leading he's not leading at all and while he is sit, sitting around Jonathan is moving. Jonathan's on the move. He's acting in faith. And this is not the first time we've seen this. In chapter 13, verse 3, who was it that struck the Philistines first? Saul had 2,000 men and Jonathan had 1,000. And at the beginning of First Samuel 13, it's, uh, it's uh, Jonathan that strikes first. It's Jonathan that smites the Philistines, not Saul. And so it looks as though that The real man of faith here and the real man of action here is Jonathan, not Saul. And faith leads to action, by the way, doesn't it? Faith results in action. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way the Scripture says it works. Isn't that what the the message of the last half of James 2 says, that faith results in works? James 2.17, even so, faith, that if it has no works, is dead, being by itself, right? Does that mean that we're saved by works? Of course not. We don't add our works to what Christ has done. We know that we're saved by grace. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. And so, salvation is a, is totally of grace, is totally of Christ and His work on the cross and what He did. We can't add anything to that at all. But as John Calvin said, faith alone saves, yes, that's true. But the faith that saves is not alone. Faith that saves is not alone. What did he mean by that? He means that, once a person is saved, it's going to, his life is going to show it, express itself in works. It's going to be accompanied by works after that. True saving faith can't help but demonstrate itself. will demonstrate itself. Uh, in that chapter, James chapter 2, a true saving faith will demonstrate itself by helping a brother out in need, right? It says, or a sister in need. And, and that will happen. Um, action will be taken because of your faith. Jonathan shows himself to be a true man of faith by his action. He's taking action. Um, Saul is not taking action. And by the way, this is—he's um, not taking action in spiritual matters. This is really a spiritual matter here, not primarily a military one, because this involves God. This whole thing. Uh, their only vic- their only hope for victory is in God, and so this is, demands spiritual actions, demands faith in God, and, a- and action as a result. Saul's 600 men are idle. They're waiting for. Saul to lead, they're waiting for him to act, they're waiting for his signal to do something, but it never. He never. they never get that signal, they never get the, 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 the you know to go forward, the signal to go forward, it doesn't happen. And to compound the problem, look who's with Saul in verse 3, chapter 14, verse 3, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, remember, does anybody remember the name Ichabod from 1 Samuel 4? Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And so we have Ahijah wearing an ephod. That's an article of clothing the priest wore over his chest. In other words, Ahijah is acting in the role of a priest. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, Ahijah is the great-grandson of Eli. You say, what's wrong with that? Well, in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, the household of priesthood in the priestly family of Eli was condemned by God. They were judged by God because of the wickedness of his sons, if you recall. And there it says, God says to Eli, Eli, I've judged your household. I've I've rejected you as priest forever. Your line's going to eventually end. You're not going to be priest anymore. He says in chapter 2, verse 30, those who honor me I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And so God rejected the priesthood of Eli. He rejected his descendants. That's going to come to an end. Even Ichabod is mentioned here. Remember Ichabod in, uh, in 1 Samuel 4, the word means no glory, right? Because the ark of God had been taken from Israel to the Philistines. They had captured it, and they said the glory is departed from Israel. In other words, there's no glory left. So what do we have in verse 3? We have a priestly family that's been rejected by God and whose days are numbered, and we have a, we have a king who has been judged by God in chapter 13 and who will not have a dynasty. That's what we have, two rejected individuals. Isn't it fitting that they're in cahoots with each other? The rejected priest and the rejected king are together with each other. Or as they say, birds of a feather will flock together, right? You're going to seek your own. You're going to seek your own kind. And Saul is not going to be helped by this priest at all. Proverbs says, He who walks with wise men shall be wise. But a companion of fools will be destroyed. Saul's not being helped by this priest at all, this priest that's been rejected by God. So you have all these issues going on with Saul while Jonathan, his son, is showing great faith. In addition to all this, the terrain is where Jonathan wants to go and and, and, and assault the Philistine garrison. It's treacherous terrain. It's difficult to navigate. In fact, it talks about the two rocky crags in verse 4. Uh, And they're even given names, Bozez and and Sina. Bozez means something like slippery, in other words, slippery terrain. That's that's why it had been named that. And then Sina means something like thorny, thorny terrain, very difficult, treacherous terrain um, in this area in Israel, difficult to maneuver around. The ascents are very steep here. In fact, Uh, I read that, militarily speaking, this would be a very inaccessible approach to take. Wouldn't be wise to take this approach at all. It's so inaccessible. But Jonathan is not deterred by any of this at all. He says, "Let's go over to the Pharisees, Philistines. What did I just say? Did I just come up with a new word? I just coined a new word: the Pharisees. Which, by the way, I'll explain that later to you. Jonathan is not deterred by any of this. He uh, he says, "Let's go get them. Whoever these people are, Philistines, I think they are. Let's go get them." And that's what he does. You know, any undertaking of faith is accompanied by difficulties, right? By problems, by issues, your faith will be tested. Your faith is going to be tested when you undertake anything for God at all. But if the Lord is behind the effort and it's for his glory, then he's going to see to it that he works things out. And by the way, putting your faith forward and acting upon it is not the glamorous path. It is not the glamorous path. It is the road less traveled. It's the one fraught with difficulties. It's the one filled with problems and, and all kinds of of, of uh, difficulties along the way. But the Lord can overcome obstacles, right? He can overcome obstacles, and so and that's our hope. And that was the hope of Jonathan that God would do something on his behalf, on behalf of Israel. So to just sitting around waiting for the enemy maybe one day to converge in and take him over, he decides to act. And so he says in verse six, "Let's cross over." to the garrison garrison of these uncircumcised. Now he calls them that a derogatory term, these uncircumcised. He calls them that because the sign of the covenant in Israel was circumcision, right? And all the people, the covenant people of, of God were circumcised to be a part of that community. The Philistines were not a part of God's community. And so they're referred to with this disgraceful term. David later on, when he fil- faced the Philistine giant, we call him the same thing. It's uncircumcised Philistine, right? And so uh, he says this, but here's the crux of the matter in, in these in this second the first half of first Samuel 14 verse 6 he says the great verse here, perhaps the Lord will work for us for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. In other words, he's saying, you don't need an army like the the sand that is on the seashore in abundance like first. Samuel 13 says, the Philistines had, to win the battle. You don't need that. You don't need the most technologically advanced weapons like the Philistines had in their day, the iron chariots and so on, to win the battle. And they had that. Uh, What you need really is, with your 600 men, is childlike faith in God to win the battle. That's what you really need. And Jonathan has a childlike faith in God. And I do mean childlike. He's ready to go take them on. Just because he's trusting in the Lord. And by the way, he doesn't command God here. Does he say, I command God to do this thing? No, he says, perhaps the Lord will work for us. He's not commanding God to do anything. Maybe the Lord will work for us if we'll trust him. It's a very humble faith he has in God. And he says the Lord can say by many or by few, it doesn't matter. Remember Gideon and his 300 men. Because God enabled them, they won the battle, right? 300, 1, or a 1, or 1,000, or 10,000, or 10 million, it doesn't matter to God, right? Because he can do it anyway. Outward circumstances may be an obstacle for us, often are. Oftentimes are an obstacle for us, but not with God. Not an obstacle. It's about trusting him, regardless of your circumstances. That's what it's all about, always. Now, Jonathan doesn't try to do this alone. He, he trusts in God, but he takes his armor bearer with him. Um, it says in verse... Uh, Seven, uh, he he's got his armor bearer with him. He says, "Let's come, let's go. Take these guys." His armor bearer said to him, "Verse seven, do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself. Here I am with you, according to your desire. You see that this loyalty, this armor bearer has to Jonathan, the loyalty, the faithfulness he has to him, and that's what every church needs. By the way, if the church is going to accomplish anything, it's going to have to have people that are loyal, to combine together as a as, as a as a team, as a church, to." Get something done for God. It's going to take loyal people, faithful people who are committed to the work of God. One guy, as a general rule, is not going to do it. It's going to take people, other other people, to help out. Uh, the work of God is rarely done by one individual, although an individual can be greatly used of God, yes, as we're going to see Jonathan was, but he has his armor-bearer with him. Who's backing him up, Who's loyal, Who's saying, yes, we can do this thing. Let's get together and do this thing for God. And they do it. And it's the body of Christ together. Moving forward to serve the Lord is what it's all about. And so there's this contrast between Saul and Jonathan. It's a great contrast. Jonathan trusting the Lord, moving ahead against all odds, treacherous terrain, uh, innumerable army he's facing, untold odds, and yet Saul sitting around doing absolutely nothing. And then we'll see in in the next several verses, 8 to 23, the faith of Jonathan is honored. It's honored. Now Jonathan comes up with a plan That's found in verses 8 to 10. Here's the plan. He says this. He says, look, we're going to reveal ourselves to the Philistines. Me and my armor bearer. Somebody, by the way, let's get Chris to write a song called Me and My Armor Bearer. As he did with the, well, you know who I'm talking about. Anyway, he says, we're going to reveal ourselves to the Philistines. And if they say, come up to us, then we're going to know that God has given, this is going to be a sign that God has given them into our hand. And that is exactly what happens. They reveal themselves, and they say, come up to us. And, and Jonathan says, look at verse 12. The men of the garrison hailed Jonathan, his armor bearer, and they said, come up, um, uh, come up to us. We'll tell you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. This is faith. This is before any action is taken. Prior to any, any military action, he says, we got it. <laughs> the Lord's going to give these guys into our hands. And so he's exercising his faith in God. And in verses 13 and 14, we have the results. It says there that 20 men, verse 14, within about a half of a furrow, an acre of land, were killed by Jonathan and his armor bearer. They're killed after they they climb the steep, this ascent. They kill these guys. 20 people are dead. That's how the battle started. But then in verses 15 and 16, there's an earthquake that takes place. It says in verse 15, there was a trembling in the camp. In the field, and among all the people, even the garrison and the raiders trembled. The earth and so it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchman in Gibeah. Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. So there's this earthquake that takes place. Now, the end of verse 15 says in the Nasby the earthquake so they became a great trembling. A great trembling. But actually, literally, the rendering is, even the side column in Nazbe has it, Uh, It's a trembling of God, it says, actually. It's not only a great trembling that took place, one that made everybody fearful. It was a trembling, an earthquake caused by God. God brought this earthquake about. He, He was the one that caused it. And so God worked on behalf of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Jonathan trusted the Lord, and then God worked on his behalf. That's what happened. Verse 16 says, as a result of that, the multitude melted away. In other words, the enemy starts to scatter. The Philistines are starting to get in full retreat. They're, they're confused. They don't know what's going on. They're scared now because of this earthquake. They begin to run and retreat. Saul see, decides to see if anybody left his camp. Well, he's, he's wondering, what, what happened here? Did someone leave my camp? Is someone gone from my camp? And so he decides to find out. And he finds out that Jonathan and his armor bearer are gone. And so he decides, I better inquire of God about this whole situation. And so he asked for the Ark of God to be brought into their midst. Uh, and, and he wants to seek the Ark of God, but then he realizes, wait a minute, the enemy's on the run. I don't need this. I don't need to do this. And so he asked the priest to, to withdraw his hand. In other words, discontinue any further inquiring of God. Now, this, this is how Saul is, right? Chapter 13, remember Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel uh, as Samuel was to come and, and offer the sacrifices and seek God's blessing, and so on. And Saul says, no, I'll take matters into my own hand. And now he's trying to use this Ark of God again in this type of situation where he is going to seek the Ark of God, seek God, as it were, but he decides, nah, things are looking pretty good, so I don't need to do that. That's how Saul's back and forth with all this stuff all the time. He's always acting this way because things are going his way. He doesn't do it. And so there's panic. There's great confusion among the Philistines because of the earthquake. In verse 20, they're fighting each other. Look at verse 20. Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Saul decides, hey, let's go for it now. The enemy's on the run. Let's try to surround him and get him. And in addition to that, Israel strengthened by two forces. Uh, one, there's, a, there's two groups of Hebrews who had defected earlier from this army. The first one's found in verse 21. It says there, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously... They were kind of like traitors fighting with the Philistines, who went up with them all around the camp. Even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan, kind of like double agents. They're going to fight for whoever is winning, you know. So these Hebrews who were with the Philistines come and fight with Israel. Now that's the first group that helps them out. And then a the second group is the guys who had gone awol from the army to begin with. Verse 21: The Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them and all around the camp, they also turned to be with. The Israelites, in verse 22, "...when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even though they even so they also pursued them closely in battle." In other words, you remember the guys who had abandoned Saul in chapter 13, the, the soldiers that had gone AWOL? They're coming out of their hiding places, and they realize, hey, the tides turn. Let's get in on this battle. And so they come and help out as well. And so you have this extra help coming in, but verse 23 tells us the real reason why... The, the battle turn, Verse 23. What does it say? Does it say, oh yeah, the traitors that came to help the Israelites fight, or the guys who went AWOL, they came to help fight? No, it says this. So the Lord delivered Israel that day. And the battle spread beyond beth It was the Lord that delivered Israel, is what he's saying. That's the reason. It's not Saul that delivered them. It's not even Jonathan, or his armor-bearer. It's God who delivered them. So Jonathan exercises faith in God. And God works on the behalf of Jonathan, and that's what happened here. But Jonathan could never have delivered Israel in his own strength. He couldn't have done it. He would have died if that were to happen. See, it's important for us to remember whatever happens in our church here, whatever spiritual victories take place, whatever whoever gets saved, whoever comes to know the Lord, it's not because we are so great, such great people and such great sanctified believers. It's because the Lord is working. It's the Lord who has accomplished accomplishes anything spiritual at all. He's the one that does it. We're simply the servants. Yes, he uses us. Fortunately for us, he uses us. But we're only the servants. It's the Lord who does the work. He's the deliverer. And so guess how much credit we take for what's done? None, right? We take no credit at all. We give it all to God. He's, the, he's to receive all the glory. He's rightfully the one to get credited with all the glory. But nevertheless, the Lord does work through people like Jonathan who put their faith in him, as we can see here. That's the faith of Jonathan. Now let's look in most of the rest of the chapter, not the entire chapter, but the foolishness of Saul, beginning in verse 24, the foolishness of Saul. Now look at verses 24 to 30. Let's start with that. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under the oath. Therefore he put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they had found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. And so we have a contrast again. The faith of Jonathan, the foolishness of Saul. Verse 24 says, The people were hard pressed that day. By the way, that same term is used in chapter 13, verse 6. It says the people were hard-pressed. It's, they were hard-pressed in chapter 13 because the Philistines were—they uh, had this massive Philistine army. But Now they're hard-pressed in chapter 14 because of the ignorance of Saul. It's the same term used. Saul has forbidden anyone to eat until evening. In other words, he figures the battle may be over then, so he doesn't want anybody eating any food until the battle's over. Um, let's just focus on the war. Well, there's only one problem with this, and that is when you're fighting a war, you get tired, weary, and hungry, don't you? People get tired, they get weary, they get hungry in fighting a war, and so they need food for sustenance. But Saul's put this curse on everybody. No one can eat. He's under a curse, or he does. And so, everybody's afraid to eat. They go into the forest, and they see honey on the ground, and everybody's afraid to eat it. They dare not eat it because they're afraid that Saul will kill them. He's put them all under a curse. But Jonathan wasn't there when this curse was pronounced. His son, he didn't know about any of this, and so he was hungry. He actually, you know, he was the one that had started this battle, right? He's hungry. He's tired. He's weary. He needs something to eat, and so he does the only logical thing: he eats of the honey. That's what I would have done, by the way, if I would with him. I would probably eaten of the honey, whether Saul said it or not. Anyway, but in verse twenty-seven it says his eyes brightened as a result of that. In other words, his eyes shone; they lit up. His, in other words, he was strengthened. He took food, and he received strength, and uh, he was, you know, ready to go again, renewed in his strength. He was refreshed after he got the needed food. And then, after that, he finds out only then that this prohibition had been made by Saul, his father. Hey, don't you know your father said that no one can eat of anything? I didn't know that. <laughs> I was hungry, and so he ate. And you can see the adverse effect this curse is having upon people. Verse 28, the end of it, it says the people were weary... They were weary. Uh, they were weary because they are weary of the battle and they hadn't eaten anything. Their eyes could have been brightened too. They could have been refreshed as well. They could have been strengthened as well. But Jonathan says, my father, my father has troubled the land. Isn't that an interesting statement from the son of Saul? He's troubled the land. That word troubled, same word is used of Achan in Joshua 7. Remember Achan took of the accursed thing? That which was banned by God in Joshua 7. And... Achan was called the troubler of Israel right and this is what this is what Saul is called here and Achan died under the judgment of God by the way because he troubled Israel and uh, here Saul is used that same word is used to term uh, what Saul did here he's kind of like the troubler of Israel himself now Uh, it's an ominous word this word trouble here in the old testament it's a a word that um, it speaks of of people who are uh, judged being judged by God and and the people had asked for a king like all the nations, and now they have a king who's troubling the land because of unwise decision. He shows his wisdom, by the way, in chapter 11, but now in chapter 14 he shows his folly. If the people had only gotten the spoils even of war that the Philistines left behind, they could have eaten that. They could have had greater physical strength gained from that eating to have greater victory over the enemy, but they were weak. This is just common sense, isn't it? Just common sense, something that oftentimes is lacking, even in churches. Sometimes we can be troubled by believers who are making rules and regulations for people to follow that have nothing to do with the Scriptures whatsoever. They trouble people with things that are extra-biblical, things that are outside of the Bible. Rules that are outside of the Bible have nothing to do with Scripture at all. They themselves have deemed necessary for everyone in the church to follow. I've been in this system. Legalism. People making rules scripture that people are forced to follow and it creates problems for people and this time at, at this time in, in Israel's history Saul wanted the soldiers to fast but the the soldiers needed to eat there's a time and a place for fasting unless you don't think we should fast anymore but there's a time and a place for fasting but it's not for soldiers during the middle of a battle that's not the time this is a dumb decision by Saul You know, you need at least a little snack, right, a little MRE or something to pop in and eat to keep going. You know, even even Jesus in Luke chapter 8, I think it was, the 12-year-old girl that was dying, uh, he healed this little girl, and you know what he said afterwards? It says he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. That's our Savior who's had not only God-man, he had common sense and utilized it. Now, fasting wasn't such a great idea during this battle. It was very foolish. It's kind of like muzzling the ox while it's treading out grain, right? Which we're not supposed to do. This is not a command of God. It's not a requirement of God. This fasting here in this particular case, it was a bad decision by Saul, who's making unwise decisions right now. We need to beware of people putting their preferences and opinions on people in the church and forcing them to do things that are not biblical. We're only concerned with biblical commands in our church, not extra-biblical ones. And we always need to remember that. It's what the Word of God authorizes that's necessary, nothing else. Now, Saul was the king. The people were supposed to be subject to the king. They were subject to the king. They were obeying what he says. But the king needed to make wise decisions, right, instead of foolish ones, to help the people out and not hurt them. So here's a foolish decision. So, and Saul's own son, Jonathan, recognized this, and he says, My father has troubled the land. He's troubled the land. Let's not trouble our church with commands and and opinions and things that are just not biblical at all and put ourselves under a yoke that, as Paul said, or as the Apostle said, neither our fathers nor we are able to bear, right? (laughs) Don't put ourselves under that kind of yoke. That would be harmful. Now, what do you think was the result of this ridiculous curse uh, given by Saul? Look at verses 31 to 35. Here's what happened as a result of this curse. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon, and the people were very weary. Again, repeated, they're very weary. And it says, the people rushed greedily upon the spoil. Now they're going after, they're starving to death. (laughs) They rushed greedily upon the spoil, the animals. They took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring to me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his uh, one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Now this is not surprising. Everybody is hungry. Uh, everybody is starving to death. They're weary from the battle, and so there's this mad dash. All of a sudden, to get this, these animals, this spoil from the Philistines, and eat them. So they kill the animals in this uh, rage, and they start to, and they and they eat the animals and they eat with the blood. Now now they should have hung up the animals to let the blood drain properly. They didn't do that. They ended up eating the meat with the blood. I don't know what all happened exactly here, but that goes against all the commandments of God from the beginning of the scripture, right? Remember Genesis 9.4? It says in Genesis 9.4, Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Leviticus 3.17, If there it is a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings, you shall not eat any fat or any blood. It says, Deuteronomy 12.24, You shall not eat blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. And that's what they should have done. But Saul had made this curse, right? So to correct the situation, Saul says, Bring me a stone. We'll have the people kill the animals on the stone and drain it out from the stone properly so there will be no sin. And then he calls them out for their sin. People have acted treacherously. But what? He, here's the problem. He's the one that opened the door for this, right? He opened the door for this, this sin. And so in verse 35, he decides to build an altar to the Lord. It looks very pious, this scene in verse 35. This is the first time, by the way, he's ever made an altar in his life to God. It looks like a very pious scene, but Saul knows how to use religion to his own advantage when it's needed. He's always trying to work religion into the equation. Have you noticed this in the last few chapters? He's always trying to work religion into He's hoping to get God on his side always. I can only get God on my side. Saul's acting like a man who has the form of godliness, but he denies his power, as it says in the New Testament. That's what he's acting like. Look at verse 36. <clears throat> Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and take the spoil among them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Um, so the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Uh, Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Saul said, draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers, who delivers Israel, though it is my son Jonathan, he shall surely die, if he's the one that's guilty. But not one of all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, on the other, will be on the other side. The people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey from with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. So Saul makes the decision to go after the Philistines and wipe them out completely. They're on the run, and the priest said, wait a minute, let's seek God in the matter first. <clears throat> you know, these are this is the rejected priest, right? And Saul's always ready to do the religious thing, so that he goes along with this. But it says there that God does not answer him. Now, this is a case where the silence is deafening, right? God's not answering Saul. He's, I, I think at this time, it's a clear indication the Lord is very displeased with Saul in his life. So Saul figures, somebody must have sinned. God's not answering the prayer, somebody must have sinned. and he wants to, So he decides to conduct an investigation to see who it is that sinned. He's going to find out if it's the last thing he does, even if it's his own son. He's going to put that person to death. That sounds like the words of a madman, doesn't it? Totally irrational at this point. Now it's interesting to me that Saul never considers himself to be the one maybe who sinned. He never says that, He's, it's, it's always, it's somebody else, somebody had to do it. So it wasn't me, it was somebody else, right? Don't we do that sometimes, though? We put the blame on somebody else. It could be our fault, and we're saying, no, its it can't be me that did this, it's somebody else. We're the guilty ones, but we're trying to lay the blame on somebody else. Somebody else must be at fault here. And so, they cast lots, and Jonathan is taken. And and Saul says, confess your wrongdoing, and Jonathan says, okay, I ate honey, so kill me, right? (laughs) He says, I ate honey. It's hard to know when he says, I must die, whether he agreed with Saul or whether he's questioning, should I die because of the fact that I ate honey? Is that, there's no question in Saul's mind about it, though. He said, Jonathan must surely die. He committed this heinous sin of disobeying my word not to eat any food, and he had the Audacity to eat some of this honey! Now that would eliminate Jonathan from being king over Israel, wouldn't it? He puts his own son to death. He's got two other sons, but he's going to eliminate John He's ready to eliminate Jonathan because of this foolish curse. Can you imagine Jonathan being put to death because of this evil of eating honey? It's great evil. Saul's not even being reasonable here. It's just no reason at all. But fortunately, the people are reasonable. Look at verse 45. The people said to Saul. Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. And the people defend Jonathan; they recognize he's the human instrument that God worked through to bring the victory about. They recognize this, and so they sum it up by saying, "For he has worked with God this day." Another great, another great verse in this chapter. He's worked with God this day. The Lord has given credit, in verse 23, for the victory, but now we see that the Lord's normal means of working is through an individual, right, or individuals. He works through people to accomplish his work. We don't work alone ever. We work with God, right? We're working with God to do his work is what we're doing. Jonathan worked with the Lord. It reminded me of 2 Corinthians 5 when Paul said, We are ambassadors with Christ, and he goes over into chapter 6, verse 1, and he says, We work together with him. We're working together with God. That's what we're doing. It's not just Paul. It's not just the apostles. It's God and them working together. So when Paul realized that what he did for Christ, what he did for Christ was done with Christ as well. He worked with God. And that's why Jesus said in John 15 to abide in the vine. The vine is Christ. How can we do the work of God unless we're abiding in the vine? How can we bear spiritual fruit unless we abide in him? It's not even possible to do the spiritual work Without abiding the vine, yes, all believers are in the vine. We're in Christ, just as yes, true. But we have to have this daily relationship with God through prayer and faith and obedience, like Jonathan did. Right? Jesus said in John fifteen four, Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. Verse five, He says, Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do what? You can do nothing right apart from Christ you can do nothing No spiritual works to be accomplished apart from Christ at all none at all you might go through a religious ceremony like Saul did you might be surrounded by religious people um, but nothing's going to be done unless you're working with God you can be appear outwardly pious and all that but nothing's going to be done unless we're working with God Jonathan's faith with faith was real he trusted God he, and God brought the victory at the same time, his father is marked by inaction, right, and irrationality, and a lack of wisdom. But that's the fruit of disobedience, and it shows up clearly in the life of Saul. We see it clearly, don't we? So Saul is not is not answered by God, and his leadership's challenged by the people, and they, and rightly so. Jonathan's not put to death, and Saul gives up the fight. Look at verse 46. Then Saul went up for pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. He just quits fighting then that's a sad ending to the story because this is a day of great victory should have been marked as a great day of victory and a day of great victory instead of saul going off sulking like that Israel had been an impossible situation but one man places his trust in God and and great things happen despite the folly of saul one man you know during the Reformation there was a man who grew strong in faith under the ministry of John Calvin This man went back to his homeland of Scotland to preach the gospel. And he went back there to advance the cause of the Reformation. And because of his leadership, largely through his leadership, Scotland came out from under the reign of Roman Catholicism because of what he did for God. That man's name was John Knox. John Knox. You might wonder, how is it that John Knox, How was it possible that he did all these great things for God? How did he accomplish all that he did? he answered that question in his own words he said this one man with God is always in the majority one man with God is always in the majority that was true of Jonathan as well wasn't it It true of John Knox it was true of all the believers in Hebrews chapter 11 it will be true of any believer who takes the same attitude who trusts in the Lord one believer with God man or woman one believer with God is always in the majority one church with God is always in the majority or as Romans 8:1 says, Romans 8:31 rather says, "If God be for us, who can be against us?" We can be assured that if we're working with God, great spiritual good will come, and God Himself will be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Your Word tonight. Again, pray tonight that we would be people of faith, people that act on faith, true faith in God, true faith in Your Word, uh, not foolishly, but acting in accordance with your word to accomplish your work, trusting in you always, knowing that you're the one that does the work ultimately, knowing that you're the one to receive all the glory, and we pray we glorify you in all, all that's done in this church. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.